0: Okay, I thought I might uh, just show you a picture of a bag of rocks. A Sort of fairly ordinary uh, bag of rocks. Nothing special. You'd pass them by if you saw them, I reckon. If you saw the markets, you wouldn't really be that interested. Um, Just a bag of rocks. Very ordinary. And yet, when you view those bag of rocks from another perspective, perhaps when you could view them uh, with the eye of a jeweller, then you might notice that that ordinary bag of rocks is actually something Extraordinary. Because sometimes the ordinary is hiding almost. uh, Sorry, the extraordinary is hiding in the ordinary. Sometimes the ordinary is in fact extraordinary. And uh, I say that this morning because I think that's what we see in our passage today. The ordinary, extraordinary. So make sure you have your Bible open at uh, Matthew 12. And uh, I'm going to, uh, there's an outline, sorry, of the talk on the inside of that bulletin, which uh, hopefully will help you follow where we're going. I think we see some pretty exciting things this morning. I'm going to pray and ask God to help us to appreciate them and to believe in them. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that you speak. And so, Father, we want to be people who listen. We want to be people who trust, we want to be people who obey. And even this morning, Father, as you now speak to us, um, we want to ask that we would really listen carefully to what you are saying by your spirit concerning your son, and that you'd humble us, and that we'd respond rightly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, point one on your outline, verse... 38, let's jump in. Then some, some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, that's Jesus, said to Jesus, teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. I don't know if you've been here the last few weeks or how much you know of Matthew's gospel, but if you know anything about it, it's a fairly remarkable request, don't you think? We want to see a miraculous sign from you. If uh, in just this chapter, just chapter 12 of Matthew, Jesus has healed a man with a shriveled hand, verse 13. He's healed all the sick people who have come to him, verse 15. He's healed a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, verse 22. And that's not to mention the remarkable things that he has taught, not to mention the remarkable claims that he's made about himself, most of which was all done in the presence of the Pharisees. But here they are, verse 38... Along with the teachers of the law, it's a pretty heavyweight religious delegation now. Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. We want to see your credentials. We want to measure your authenticity. Hard to believe that they were asking sincerely. Hard to believe they were honestly seeking the truth. So, it smells suspiciously like another test of Jesus like we've seen before it smells suspiciously like another accusation of Jesus like we've seen before and so Jesus who knows their heart replies in kind verse 39 Jesus answered a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah it's a stern reply It's a rebuke, really. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, but not just them, did you notice? He actually rebukes their whole generation. Uh, In many ways, Jesus' words are the same as what he said back in chapter 11. We saw it a few weeks ago, chapter 11, where he compared his generation to children who could not be satisfied, children who could not see the plainly obvious right in front of them. And here it is again in chapter 12 here, What more do they need to understand that Jesus is the king of the kingdom of heaven? What more credentials do they need laid out before them than have already been laid out? And so Jesus says no sign will be given to them, at least not the sort of sign they were after. Instead, Jesus gives them the sign, he says, of Jonah. Verse 40, let's keep reading. He says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus refers them back to the famous story of the prophet Jonah. If you haven't read it, you really should. It's just four chapters long. You could find it in the Bible easily. It's a book called Jonah, really worth reading. But the prophet Jonah was sent to the evil, the utterly evil city of Nineveh and he was sent there by the Lord to proclaim the Lord's imminent judgment on their evil but Jonah flees from the Lord and tries to escape by boat but the Lord pursues him causes a great storm to come upon the ship and so Jonah in an effort to calm the storm is tossed overboard by the rest of the sailors and the calm the storm calms and the Lord provides a great fish to swallow Jonah and for three days and three nights he was inside the fish until after that time Jonah is vomited onto dry land and he then makes his way to Nineveh. You can see why it's a a famous story. And that is the sign that Jesus gives to his generation. That's the sign. Nothing like, I would think, the sort of sign they were expecting. Nothing for them to see at least not there and then. Jesus is, of course, referring to something that is yet to happen. Uh, Jonah and his preaching and his ministry were clearly of the Lord. The whole event with the big fish and all of that spoke clearly of him being the Lord's man. That whole experience was his credentials, his mark of authenticity. And so how much more Jesus... But you know what? Not very long at all after speaking these very words would be condemned to death, a death that he chose to suffer. He chose to suffer it for it was through that death that he would defeat evil and save his people. And after his, that saving death on that cross, Jesus would be buried in a tomb and yet three days later would rise again alive seen and heard and touched by many witnesses in lots of different places and lots of different times over a period of 40 days. The resurrection of Jesus, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, proves beyond any doubt that he is of God, that he is the Christ, that he is the king of the kingdom of heaven. And look, if you don't know much about the evidence for Jesus' resurrection, I really encourage you to check it out for yourself, for it is compelling. It's compelling. And the reality of the resurrection speaks loudly and clearly of the authority and the authenticity of Jesus as the king of the kingdom of heaven. But even so, you know what, it must have seemed a strange sign to the people who were listening to Jesus here in Matthew 12, this sign of Jonah, a deliberately strange sign. Sign For Jesus knew the people's hearts. He knew why they were asking it. They weren't asking genuinely to seek the truth. They were asking out of their wickedness. They were asking out of their hardened unbelief. This is the same people who a few verses earlier, we saw it last week in verse 34, Jesus calls a brood of vipers. Who are you who, who, are, you who are evil can say anything good? And so Jesus presses in on them in what he says next. Verse 41. The men of Nineveh, Jesus says, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now one greater than Jonah is here. Because we have got to remember the story of Jonah did not end with him being spewed up onto a beach. After. That happened after Jonah was vomited onto dry land. He went to Nineveh, a city, remember, that was renowned for its evil. Those guys were wicked and bloodthirsty and ruthless and godless. They were renowned for their evil. And Jonah goes in to the great city of Nineveh. And on his first day of preaching, he warned them that in 40 days time, Nineveh would be overturned by the Lord God. You can read about it for yourself in the book of Jonah. And you know what? On the first day that they heard the message, these wicked, evil, godless Ninevites believed the message, believed God. They recognized the message of God, they recognized the messenger of God, and they believed. And even the king of the Ninevites repented before the Lord, he humbled himself and he cried out to the Lord God for mercy and compassion and salvation. You know what else? God heard their prayers. God did not judge them. God saw their repentance and forgave them and did not destroy them. That was the response of the Ninevites to the message of the Lord through Jonah. And now we come forward in time, okay, to Matthew chapter 12, our passage this morning, and here is Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ, one who is infinitely greater than Jonah, the greatest prophet of all, the one who was the word of God in flesh. He stands among his own people. These are not pagans like the Ninevites. These are his own people. These are the people who have the promises of God in his word. He stands especially here before men who are entrusted with the study and the teaching of those scriptures. And they refuse to listen to either him or his message. They refuse to recognize him. They refuse to repent. They refuse to humble themselves. They refuse to cry out for mercy. Instead, they accuse Jesus of being in league with the devil. They call him a glutton and a drunkard. It is a shocking response. And so Jesus warns them that on that final day of judgment that is fast approaching, the men of Nineveh, they will stand up and they will point at these guys and they will condemn them because for whom much has been given, much is expected. And that must have been very difficult for the Pharisees and the teachers of the Lord to hear that these ancient pagans would condemn them at the day of judgment. But it is all because of their response to the word of God. And interestingly, you know, nowhere in the Bible are we told that the Ninevites knew about the whole fish thing. Nowhere we're told that it's not as if, you know, they saw that Jonah, he smelled a bit like a fish and they asked him, you know, what's gone on? There's no thought, no hint that Ninevites knew that he had just spent three days inside of a fish so as to think, well, he really must be a prophet of the Lord because of all that's happened to him. No, 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 they just heard the message. They just recognized it as the word of God, and they recognized that the only right response was to take it very, very seriously. So I don't think we can say here, well, hang on, the Pharisees that teach the law... Surely they've got an excuse because Jesus hasn't risen from the dead yet. No, there is no excuse. There is no excuse. They have failed to respond rightly to the word of God, to the teaching of Jesus. And the wonderful, incredible response of the Ninevites magnifies their failure and adds to their condemnation. But it wasn't just the Ninevites. They won't be the only ones pointing the finger at Jesus' generation at the Day of Judgment. Jesus refers to another pagan this time the queen of the south the queen of sheba she will be with them too have a look at with me verse 42 Jesus says in verse 42 the queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to solomon's wisdom and now one greater than solomon is here it's probably a less well known incident than uh, the jonah one but when solomon was king Okay, about a thousand years before Jesus, the Lord gave him great wisdom and insight, a breadth of understanding, we're told in the Bible, a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. And in 1 Kings chapter 10, 1 Kings chapter 10, we can read of a royal visit to Solomon from the Queen of Sheba, who was an impressive woman herself. She had heard about the wisdom of Solomon, and she came, we're told, to test him with hard questions. But on meeting Solomon and hearing him, she was overwhelmed with his wisdom. And we can read about it in 1 Kings 10. She praises the Lord for giving his king such wisdom. See the link? What she, a pagan, recognized in merely Solomon, the people of Jesus' generation, and in particular their leadership, they couldn't recognize in Jesus himself. And yet Jesus is greater than Solomon. As great as the wisdom of Solomon was, and it's filled lots of our Bible, hasn't it, with the book of Proverbs and so on, Jesus' wisdom, Jesus' understanding, Jesus' teaching is infinitely greater, infinitely better. And the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of the South, her response puts these guys in Jesus' generation to shame. It condemns them and will condemn them on the last day. Because of their failure to respond rightly to the message of Jesus, the word of God. You see, can you get it? The people of Jesus' generation are in terrible peril. Terrible, terrible peril. That's what Jesus is warning them. They wanted a miraculous sign from him. But he has given them instead the most serious of warnings. That something terrible is going to happen to them. And so he closes his warning with a bit of a riddle. A parable. Let me read it to you. Verse 43. Jesus said when an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through an uh, arid places, seeking rest and doesn't find it. Then it says, I'll return to the house I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go in and live there. And the final condition of the man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Now that's a difficult parable, I think. It's a bit tricky. It is a parable though, okay? That last sentence in verse 45 confirms that it's a parable. Jesus is passing on a warning, a judgment on his wicked generation. And the fact that it is a parable means that the precise details don't need to trouble us too much. Okay, it's a parable. It's a riddle. Jesus is not giving detailed teaching about what unclean spirits do in particular situations. He's telling a story. And the focus of the parable is on the condition of the man, which the spirit in the parable calls a house. And so the spirit leaves it, goes for a roam, comes back, finds it empty and clean, and so gathers seven, under, seven other more wicked than it. And the house of the man is in a worse condition than to begin with. Jesus never explains the parable, and so we need to approach any explanation of it with humility. But can I suggest that with the coming of Jesus... The kingdom of God had come upon the people. Jesus said exactly that earlier in the chapter. With the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God had come upon the people. Which, of course, is good news. The casting out of demons, the healings, the thing that Jesus was doing are all evidence of the goodness of the coming of the kingdom. But with the coming of the kingdom, you see, the people of Jesus' generation are now in a more perilous position than ever before. Because now Jesus is among them, as good as that is, They are now in danger of rejecting the king. The one greater than Jonah was now present. The one greater than Solomon was now present. And if you are not for him, you are against him. And so Jesus warns the people of this generation that the fate of that man in the parable, to whom something good happened, but in the end ended up worse off than before, that will be their fate too, if they persist in their unbelief and their rejection of him. That is how it will be, Jesus says, With this wicked generation, you'll you'll end up worse than you have ever been before. It's like we've seen week after week as we've worked our way through these passages. Our response to Jesus matters enormously. Your response to Jesus matters enormously. And you know, we're not in the generation of Jesus, that's true. But maybe in a way similar to the Pharisees, you are asking, Jesus, asking questions Sorry, of Jesus and Christianity, not because you want to know the truth, but because you want to obstruct the truth. You know what I mean? You need more evidence. You need more signs. You need more proof. And it's not wrong to want those things, provided that you want them in order to establish the truth about Jesus, rather than trying to escape the truth about Jesus. You don't want to keep asking those sort of questions if all you are doing is holding the truth about Jesus at arm's length. That's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. Because I reckon, you know, at some point in most people's journey towards Jesus, they need to stop asking the question, why should I believe in Jesus? And they should start asking the question, do I have any good reasons not to believe in Jesus? Hear the difference? At some point in that journey towards Jesus... Most people will need to start, change their question. Why should I believe in Jesus? Changes to, do I have any good reasons not to believe in Jesus? Friends, our response to Jesus matters. And to reject Jesus, it's a very, very serious matter indeed. I'm not talking about coming to church, okay? I'm talking about our personal response to Jesus. It matters very much indeed. However, our passage ends not with the obstruction and the rejection of the Pharisees and the teacher of the law and many others of Jesus' generation. Our passage actually suddenly shifts. Did you notice as we're being read? Suddenly shifts focus onto another group entirely, another response entirely. Point two on your outline. Let's have a look at it. You know, I reckon with um, so much drama hanging in the air, you know, the drama of the confrontation of of Jesus by the Pharisees and the other leaders. I reckon the drama of the grandeur of the story of Jonah and the Queen of the South, the drama of the parable of Jesus and the warnings of Jesus. There's so much drama hanging in the air of these verses, I reckon. But what follows next in Matthew's account seems almost out of place because it seems so ordinary. seems so ordinary. I'm talking about verses 46 to 50. seems so ordinary. And yet, like I was saying at the beginning, so often the seemingly ordinary hides the extraordinary. See if you can spot it. Verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. It's all pretty ordinary, isn't it? Jesus' family, his mother Mary, his brothers, James and the others, standing outside wanting to talk. Sometimes people are surprised that Jesus had a family, but there you are, there they are. Joseph is thought to have died by this time, his human father, and so was his mother and his brothers wanting a word with Jesus. Matthew doesn't tell us why. Uh, it's not as if Jesus forgot his lunch that day when he left home. He's, he'd left for a while. He's been on the road. In Mark's Gospel, if you read a, the Mark's account here, uh, Mark suggests that Jesus' family wanted to take charge of him because they thought he was crazy. But Matthew doesn't mention any of that here, perhaps because he doesn't want us to miss Jesus' reply. Can you see it? Verse 48, Jesus replies to him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Friends, it's a, in a, very, it's a very quiet, ordinary, remarkable sort of seen in many ways certainly compared to the other stuff we've been reading these past weeks don't miss the extraordinary will you don't miss the extraordinary here modelled imperfectly by the disciples but modelled nonetheless is the right response to Jesus obedience and trust in his word which is pretty ordinary and yet Against the darkness of the antagonism and the opposition and the wickedness of the Pharisees and the like, it shines like diamonds. It's extraordinary. Jesus points to these ordinary people and he declares them to be extraordinary. Did you notice? He says, here is my family. Here's my family. The family of the king. The family of the king of the kingdom of heaven. Here are my family. Who is my brother, who, are my, who is my mother, who are my brothers? Here, here's my family. And notice what marks them out. Verse 50, Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Just like the Ninevites, just like the Queen of the South, the Queen of Sheba, and exactly unlike the rest of his generation, these guys, these ordinary looking people, had recognized Jesus as their king and had responded with obedience to his message. And it seems like such an ordinary response, simply doing the will of the Father, obeying King Jesus, seems so ordinary, but Jesus says, no, it is extraordinary. Extraordinary. How how incredible is it that Jesus says, here is my family, You think of who Jesus is, the eternal Son of God. Think of the authority he's exhibited just in the passages we've been looking at together these past few weeks. He says, here is my family. I think that's extraordinary to be part of the family of King Jesus. There is an intimacy there that is extraordinary to be part of the family of the King. And it's all about obedience to the word of the King. Not just back there and then, of course, but here and now too. And so, by the time you get to the end of the Gospel, Matthew records for us the command of Jesus, the risen Jesus, issued to his remaining disciples. It's worth having a look. So, uh, come and flick with me. We won't be going back to Matthew 13, I don't think. So, Matthew 28, just come to the end of the book. You're allowed to do this with the Bible, jump to the end, you know. It's a famous bit of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28, and verse 18. Jesus is risen from the dead. And he appears to his disciples, verse 18, it says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's the king. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Can you see it? The message the disciples were to take into all of the nations was a call to obey the king. The king who has defeated death and the devil in his death and resurrection. The king who has made it possible for your sins to be forgiven. The king who has opened up eternal life for you to enjoy. He is the king and he is to be obeyed and his word and his teaching is to be obeyed. To be part of the family of the king is to obey the king. So ordinary, yet so extraordinary. You look at us. Hard to imagine a more ordinary bunch of people. and I'm certainly including myself. And yet if we belong to Jesus and we seek to obey him, Jesus, if he was here this morning to speak to us in that sort of way, he would say, here is my family. Could there be any greater thing to be called? Any greater thing to belong to? The family. Here is my family. I was talking to someone recently, uh, not part of DPC, but we were talking about DPC, and, and this person's observation was, you know, you guys seem to take the Bible really seriously. I thought, well, that's right. No, it wasn't a criticism, it was just an observation, but I thought, that's right, because we are in the family of the king, and so we seek to obey the king. And it's a joyful obedience. It's a fulfilling obedience. You wouldn't swap it. It's a necessary obedience. It's why in your small group Bible studies, it's why you should work so hard at applying the truth of the Bible. Specifically, and practically, and particularly, it's so important to not merely hear the word, to not merely read the word, but to do it as well. Because having been saved from our sins, we want to obey everything that King Jesus commands. We don't obey, okay, hoping to be saved, We obey because we've been saved. Need to spell that out. We don't obey hoping to be saved. 95% of the people out there think that's right, but that's not right, is it? We obey because we've been saved. Because we want to be the family of the king. We want to be the people that Jesus says, here is my mother and my brother and my sisters. And it's why, folks, I reckon that we regularly need to ask ourselves and to ask each other questions like this. You ready? Here it is. When's the last time that you stopped doing something or started doing something because of what you read in the Bible? When's the last time that you stopped doing something or started doing something because of what you read in the Bible? If you can't think of it, then I'm I'm thinking, you're not obeying the Bible. You're not obeying the King. Because every time we open the Bible, there is King Jesus speaking to us a word that we must obey. A challenging word, a comforting word, a true word, a word of authority, and it needs to shape us entirely. And we should not come away from reading the Bible any time at all without thinking, how do I need to change in response to this? Because I'm I'm a member of the family of King Jesus. And our family likeness is obedience. Because whoever does the will of his Father in heaven is the family of Jesus. looks so ordinary, reading the Bible, seeking to do what it says. It's very unspectacular, looks very ordinary, but in fact, according to Jesus, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinarily glorious and good. Jesus saying to ordinary people like us, here is my family. Here is my mother and my brother and my sisters. It's outrageously great, isn't it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the authority of Jesus and the truth and the power and the goodness of his word. Father, what a privilege that we might be the family of Jesus, not because of anything that we've done, because of all that he's done for us. Father, we want to be people who take his word seriously. We want to be people who Jesus would say, here are my family. That's an extraordinary privilege. And we want to be so stirred by it, Father, that we just want to obey. Father, it's not as if obedience is harmful to us. It's actually good for us. So, Father, we want to be people who read your word and do what it says. We want to be people who hear you, trust you, obey you. Please, Father, by your spirit, make us those people.